Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, Guy. Hello, Gary. It's the Rick on Tours, isn't it, really? <laughs> oh, very good. I mean, I think this if, if, if our show was ever designed for anyone, it was, it's probably Rick Wakeman. Well, it is and it isn't in that um, in that we're not really needed here. <laughs> <laughs> he a very famous uh, raconteur as he is, you know. On his on, do, he's on tour, I think, just about to go on tour. About to the, go on tour, yeah. Doing uh, his um, his, uh, I think it's the, the not quite as grumpy as last year tour, where he talks through songs and he plays them and tells stories and gags, and hopefully he can tell a few of those here today. Yeah, exactly. Well, hopefully. As per usual, or, you know, uh, um, one will get a few that you don't hear from him. You know what? I was thinking about the period uh, when we all sort of discovered Rick Wakeman, or people of our age, as it were, and how different times are today to to then. I mean, obviously, you know, guitar heroes, we had those, but they were keyboard heroes in those days. I mean, people, you'd play air keyboards, wouldn't you? But you wouldn't play it like Mrs. Mills with your hands in front of you. You'd play it as though That's you had... That's right, left and right. Yeah, left yeah, and right. yeah, yeah, you know, like, you had they were wi- like wings. That's right. Because he, he was absolutely the guy for that. He was the... I remember looking at the ring. But one thing, I remember there was, he had one thing, which I think was just a sort of box with two VU meters in it. And he was, I was like... Wow, <laughs> what is that? I know, and he did, he had mirrors behind him as well to make it look like he had even more keyboards than he really had. And of, <laughs> and of course, the sequin cape. Um, but you know, thinking about those great heroes of the time, you know, John Lord, Mike Garson, Keith Emerson, Tony Banks, Rick Wright, Rick Wright, of course. Um, you know that that's an extraordinary time. I mean, you, yeah, you know, I, can you imagine kids of today? Getting excited Kids, yeah. about keyboard players. No, well, or just stuff in general. The whole point is it's all in your phone. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, you know, so I, I th- I'm really excited. I think there's going to be lots to, of tales to tell because not only has he played on some of the most famous records. Do you know what? I didn't realise he played on Get It On, T-Rex's Get It On. Yes, that's right. I, I, and I'll be honest, I found that out researching this as well. Yeah. And- um, do you know what? I, I actually think the P word doesn't even need to appear this week we're just <laughs> in aren't we this is it this is the man that invented the p-word really didn't he <laughs> uh and of course but life on mars famously and uh and then his his, his solo album sold millions millions yeah. and and he famously did one where he did on a show ice. on ice there's a funny story about that i want to ask him about well yes i'm sure he'll tell us anyway let's get him on come on enough of us waffling welcome to the rock on tours Okay, guys, I'm ready. This was great, guys. I, I, it's so great to talk to two guys that have done this. Well, it's a big tune for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. You know, what people forget about Bowie is that he was such a kind man. I've listened to a few of them and they've been really good, man. I'm sitting in the back of the car coming into London. They're brilliant. I know you're musicians, but you've been more professional than a lot of journalists. Remember me? 
I'm in a band now. <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah. Two, two get good at yeah. something. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Hunters podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. Hello. Hello. Oh, hello. Sorry about this. Sorry <laughs> <It's okay. laughs> right about it. Grace, just grab my tin and shut the door. Can we, yeah. uh, can we see you, Rick? Is there any chance of seeing your face if you go? Yeah, hold on. Should be. Where is that bit? Down the bottom left-hand corner. Start video or something. Or oh, oh yeah, I've got it. There you go. Yay! Sorry about this. We we we're in the middle of moving house, and we were down at the other house where the builders are all there, and builders being what builders are there was more tea being drunk than work going on <laughs> so, so we were late getting back apologies for that and then that's all right then attacked by the dogs have you moved from dis to dat we've just moved a bit further a bit further south just south of ipswich didn't johnny depp buy a house up there yeah johnny depp's got a place in i claudia schaefer's got a place up here Griff Reese Jones, there's um, Ian Lavender, of course. Um, of course. <laughs> yeah, bless him. Ian's been here for, for years now. Uh, is he still a boy? Um, <laughs> you know, the amazing thing is, he's, how old is Ian now? 70, 76, I think. He's still, you walk down the street with him and you still get, and, and I lie to you not, tell it, don't tell him your name, Pike. It's, it, it, it's, just, it's the most shouted out <laughs> thing in the street. He, because even though even though he's like seventy odd now, he is still incredibly recognisable. Wow. Yeah. How did the tour go in America, Rick? It was good. It's strange over there. It really is strange. I mean, you've got half the country who think it's uh, all a hoax, and the other half who are totally and utterly paranoid. Most of the hotels closed all their restaurants. It is very bizarre. But we, it was all right. It was it was good. I mean, it's very strange looking out at an audience where everybody's wearing masks. It's a bit like a Lone Ranger convention. It's very weird. <laughs> people are, I mean, people were really good and they're very careful. Um, and and what, what was it like for you in terms of protocols and everything? Were you, I mean, like, well, it was good. I, I mean, it, it was good. I mean, I knew what it was before I went. Because I, I mean, so many bands and people over there have got um, part of their crews and that have caught COVID and everything's cancelled. The number yeah. of cancellations is phenomenal. So, uh, the rules are very strict. Easy because it was a one-man show, so there's only four of us travelling in two vehicles. The audiences are very strict over there. They had to have the COVID certificates, plus they had to be tested uh, two days before and a test on the day when they were there. Uh, very, I mean, very, very strict. Yeah, we're going out in January, so we're yeah keen to know what it's like. Yeah, and nobody okay. allowed backstage. But, you know, a bit weird at first, but after you get used to it, you go, okay, this makes makes sense. They're just being doubly precautious, which you can understand when you see the list of bands who've had huge problems yeah. over there. But yeah, Master, yeah. do you find as one gets older and, you know, dare I say it, grumpier, um, the, <laughs> the idea of no one coming backstage is actually very appealing? <laughs> I must admit, there is, what was, it's the amount of time that was saved. One of the things that we did was we, we just used four hotels and used them as hubs. So we would drive maybe two, two and a half hours to a show, then drive back. And one of the things you're quite right, when nobody came back afterwards, suddenly you're out. You haven't got, <laughs> you haven't got, um, you know, gone is the liggers pit. You know, you don't you know where, you know, which we used to do in in uh, on one of the last yes tours that I did. 
we sectioned off an area of every venue and uh, where we put the what we call the blaggers in you know you know really yeah. well who come in one of the tickets and then once they were seated at the front there was a, a release of a banner that came down that just said Ligger's Pit. <laughs> and, uh, harsh, harsh, but fair. It was, it was. So, um, but you know, I, I, obviously you have friends that you would like to see and, and you don't. But what was amazing was you come off stage, you get in the car and you're gone. Because one of the other things as well, security wouldn't allow anybody at the back with stuff to sign. No. They were all told beforehand, couldn't happen. So you get in the car and suddenly, you know, you come off stage at 10 and instead of leaving there normally at, at like quarter past 11 or something daft, in, uh, at, at sort of like by midnight, you're, you're back in your room. Brilliant. Uh, it's, it's, and it is interesting. It, it, is, it, does, it does work. And the, and the same, um, I mean, the meet and greets we did, but they were really carefully controlled. Um, I mean, basically... They were in another building. No, they were down on, I was on stage <laughs> looking down at them. Uh, yes. hey, well, that's worth a thousand dollars, Rick. That's worth a thousand dollars. Just to be uh, close. The, the, meet and, the meet and greet Zoom. The, yeah, you're right. <laughs> and uh, well, what we did, uh, and we did with the, um, uh, with the, with the photos, at one side of the piano, another, they had a route to go up. Uh, uh, I mean, Live Nation organised the, the meet and greet. I mean, so strict. And, you know, on the first I said, is it really necessary to be this strict? And then I always read the list of of, of uh, musos uh, and bands on the road where they'd had to stop because somebody yeah. got it. Well, yeah. Genesis, so, Bon Jovi. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 really is it's it's worth. And I, I saw Tony living while I was over there. Oh, um, dear Tony, the lovely Tony. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Uh, at uh, on the la the last show, which was in in Woodstock, and and Tony came and he sort of shouted from out, outside i've got two jabs a booster jab i've had more pricks than anybody would ever care to wish i thought <laughs> well i won't i won't go into that and uh, and so i did see see tone which was which was great and he said it's been pretty terrible well, they were the first out i think king crimson were the first people to venture yeah. out weren't they yeah they were yeah. And he said it he said it was very weird he yeah. said it was really really weird but well so, you're in yeah. a band with robert fripp i mean it's bound to be no, I got an email from Robert, didn't I, Guy? You, know you did, that. I know you Robert did. Robert was saying very, how terif yeah. terrifying it was out there, you know, that everyone was so worried because, because you know, you've got your money on the line, you know, that, that's going to be your money if, if suddenly you can't play anymore, you know? I know, it's it's really hard. I mean, it, it was strange looking down, as I said earlier, to see a mask, but it was great to get out and be, be playing. It was, And you, you could sense that um, we're moving closer Albeit slowly, to the to the to the time when there's a, an element of normality. I still think it'll be towards the end of next year before it'll be yeah, true, yeah. Norm, true, yeah. true sort of normality. But it just shows that it can be done if you're careful and 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 audiences are, audiences are careful. Tony said to me, some bands out there, they're going, "Oh, it'll be fine." Rick, you, you yeah. know, look, researching your career, it's huge, right? Your your it branches everywhere. So we're just going to pick a few of those great. Fruits. Yeah. I said to Gary, if you go and look you up on Apple Music, you're not an artist, you're a genre. Uh, yeah, but the, the, <laughs> yeah, that basically translated means I'm old. No, <laughs> no listen. Not you know, really. It means, it means you're industrious. You, you just haven't stopped. But some of the stuff you've, you've, you've delivered over the decades has, has been, you know, I mean, it's, it's priceless and it's, it's with us forever. We would love to go back to talk about some of that that early stuff and about you, you like. and, 
you know, we all know you were, you know, you were a child prodigy at keyboards and, and at piano, but just the beginning of you getting into rock music, who, who, who was turning you on? I mean, other than the old classical writers. Well, I was very lucky because my dad was a great pianist and he, he had a concert party with my mum before the war. So there was music going on in the house all the time. Dad was playing the piano. It was a good piano play in the style of, of Charlie Coons, the old stride, great stride piano player. Ah. Uh, and, he, and during the war years, he often said he was like being shot at on the front line somewhere out in Italy. And then he was being dragged off uh, to go and play for Billy Cotton or, or um, wow. Harry <laughs> Seeking. Wow. And then taken back to be shot at. He said it was it was bizarre, but uh, because there was music going on all the time, and my dad encouraged me to listen and play as many different kinds of music as I as I could. Um, my my early heroes, I suppose my first early real early hero was Lonnie Donegan. Because skiffle was great because everybody could have a skiffle band, you know, a tea chest, a piece of wood and a bit of string, um, something to rattle an old washboard. And I'm old enough that every house had a washboard, and it was just it was it was great and. Uh, and I talked to Lonnie, I got to, to know Lonnie many years later. I got to know him really well and uh, um, talked to him about those days. And he said, well, that's really how it all started, because it was something that every, you didn't need any money. And in fact, if you yeah. had somebody who had a guitar, however cheap or whatever, you're laughing. You know, with an acoustic guitar, the old wash, washboard and the old T-chest bass. You yep. got a band. Was this stuff sort of compartment? I mean, you obviously love classical music as well, right? You must have. Yeah. Your... Oh, yeah. So did, did, yeah. did you compartmentalise it or was it all the same, hitting the same spot with you? I, it, really weirdly, I always thought music as music. I, I never, I never. Yeah, everyone says that, but. <laughs> well, it was one of the things <laughs> no. when I, I always wanted to do uh, stuff uh, when I was, in, even before I went to the Royal Coast Music and after I wanted to do. One of the things that I, I couldn't get my head around was I, I loved orchestras playing pop music, popular music. Mm -hmm. of the day. I thought it was really, really good, except that they, a lot of the musicians didn't understand it. And while you can write the notes, you can't write a feel. But I always felt the other thing that was wrong, there was, there was a few bands, a few musicians uh, playing with some orchestral instruments, but it was the them and us. It was yeah. not the same. And when I did things like finally got to go do things like Journey and, and King Arthur. I wrote the band as part of the orchestra. They weren't band and then you had on an orchestra. They were all part of the orchestra. And I always thought that was that would actually be the thing that worked. And and unlike a sort of deep purple live in Well Japan. I was gonna say I, I did I did um John Lord's concerto for group and orchestra many times with him and in fact did yeah. the recording with him. And and he always said about like when they were at the Albert Hall there was like Outright hostility, basically, between yeah. The I mean, John was a yeah. very close, very close yeah, friend, as you know. I, we, I adore John, yeah. And we, we, we talked about it a lot. I mean, I love John to bits, bless him. You know, he said, Well, also, Ian Pace told me it was World War II uh, when they, <laughs> they did that concert. I said, How did you cope with it? And Ian said, Basically, we, we went round the pub and let John get on with it and came back. And he said that was the only way to, to, to deal with it because he said the orchestra, and back then they didn't, they didn't get it. I'll tell you something that's interesting. Many years later, uh, in 1999, uh, to the, I recorded a, a sequel to Journey to the Centre of the Earth called Return to the Centre of the Earth. That's right, yeah. And I used the, I used the um, uh, London Symphony Orchestra again. And what was stunning was that they, it was a completely different mindset. They got it straight away. And one of the things that I will always remember was uh, we did one, one, of the, one of the pieces, and um, it was about... 
30 of them came up into the control room. This was at the old CTS in Wembley. And uh, about 30 of them came to the control room. And they're always nattering when they come in. And the conversation, I always remember the first thing, is, uh, uh, how many of us going to Ozfest this year? <laughs> what? Yeah. And, and when they said, oh, yeah, it's great, we're going, going to Ozfest. And uh, then we're going off to Glastonbury. We're going, not Glastonbury, too. Uh, trying to think where it was then. Uh, anyway, they, they were off to some festival and things. And I said, Are you sitting there? oh, yeah. And and suddenly, and it showed in their playing, they got, even though you can't write Phil musically, they got it and they understood it. And I talked to a lot of them after, and they said, well, things have changed. Things are, There's no longer the, them and us. You know, we all feel part of the same, the same group. Yeah, I don't want to jump too far ahead, uh, but I will mention the fact, because you were talking about how, all music is music and, and uh, you know, influences, all these different influences that were in your life from classical to, to, to jazz or whatever. Uh, and, and, you know, your calling card as a kid when you're about 20 years old is, is temperament of mind that you do with Straubs. And yeah. you, you, you do that in the live album, the uh, uh, Antiques and Curios, that album at the Festival Hall. And you listen to that piece, uh, and I just I listened again today, and you've got all musical styles going on in there. You've got boogie woogie. You've got classical. You've got baroque. You know what happened? Roll. What happened was it was uh, it was at Sheffield University. We were playing in with, with playing with Straws, and um, for some unknown reason, we lost all power on stage. Uh, and, and so, basically, we just sort of I just sort of sat at the I was sitting at the piano. Dave Cousins and Tony Hooper, but the guitar, and there was nothing they couldn't sing, couldn't do anything. The, the PA was off. Um, uh, had had some um, percussion to bang, but that was it. John Ford, no, nothing for his bass. And Dave just walked up to the front of the stage and shouted out, Rick will now do a piano solo. And I went, <laughs> Rick will what? And I said, and, uh, and I, I didn't have a party piece or anything like that. And I said, I said, what do I do? And he said, whatever comes into your mind. So I just I just sat down and I treated it a bit like I do sometimes when I so I sort of play every day. And it can be sometimes it can be a piece I'm working on, sometimes it can be practicing a piece, sometimes it can just be anything that comes to mind. So I was sitting there at the piano, also keeping one eye on and seeing if there's any lights gonna come on any of the amps or whatever it was. And when I sort of ran out of the first bit that I was playing, I, I I then went into, I thought, oh, silent movie. I'll have a silent movie. And I did that. And then there was the old um, cigar advert. I can't remember what it yeah. was. Hamlet. Yeah, Hamlet. Hamlet. Air on a G-string. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I threw that in. And basically, I just kept going until I saw some lights on and, and a signal from Dave that we were back working again. And <laughs> the, the, the difficulty was that it, it went down well. And I, I did it. It was literally about a week later that we were at um, QE Hall doing just a collection of Antiques and Curios, the album live. And um, Dave said, you should do that again. And I said, well, I can probably only do it once more because otherwise it's not how I'm feeling. It's not, it's not an ad lib as I feel. Mm -hmm. It'll be a rehearsed piece. Um, so I literally only did it that once and I think one other time. And by then it had started to get organized. So it didn't didn't work, but it was it was it was great fun to do. But the story yeah. finishes, doesn't it? Because it's, it's the, that particular recording was in July 1970, and and that week the Melody Maker had a picture of you on the front cover with Tomorrow's Superstar. Is that is that true, Rick? It, it is true, but they they sort of run out of front covers, 
So it was, <laughs> it was an, an element of desperation. Who can they stick on? Yeah, because it was very funny, that, Q, that QE Hall show. It got reviews in the Times, the Financial Times, would you believe, The Guardian, and loads of other uh, sort of broadsheets at the time. And a lot of that, I think, was down to the fact that it was a midweek concert. And there weren't many midweek concerts going on in London at the time. So we got quite a bit of press out of it. But also for a, for a live band of two basic acoustic guitars, um, no drummer, but a percussionist, Hud surrounded himself with everything he could bang or hit. Uh, and John Ford on a slap bass, although it was an electric bass, but he, he played it like a slap. And I, I by that time, had added um, an L100 Hammond organ, which was falling apart, but great. And... Uh, a few other little bits and pieces. And, and suddenly for a strange musical lineup, we had quite a unique little sound. Yeah. And everybody, nice. everybody knew what they were doing. And Dave Cousins, strange voice, but it works. And the Strawberry people love it. And But it works so well with Tony Hooper. Tony had a real angelic voice and it, it worked brilliantly. With, it sort of calmed Dave's voice down quite a lot, which was great. So it was, it was quite an unusual sound and setup. And... And it worked. I was, I was very proud of, of, of Straubs. And I think, and that truly was a live concert because Tony Visconti, I think, had three mics. That was it, to try and deal with everything. And a couple of other DI things in uh, to, to the back of the, of the uh, theatre. No editing. We didn't have the money to go in and, um, you know, repair anything. So it was, it was warts and all, the whole show. And I've, I've listened to it in, in recent years and thought, you know what, for a live show, it had a lot of energy. It, mm. it, was, it was nice and, I'm, and some nice songs. Uh, and I'm, I'm yeah. really proud of it. And for what started off when I joined them the year before as a folk band, and, and, and suddenly you've got, a, you know, Hammond organs and all that sort of thing going on with, um, with Wild Wild pedals, and, which was great fun. Very un folk like i mean i remember when we did we first put that all together and went into a couple of folk clubs which is where we were playing uh, and uh, and the um sort of the caftan brigade absolutely crapped themselves they couldn't believe what was going on oh, i love the captain <laughs> now but you've mentioned a name in there which is very which is something we really want to cover which is tony visconti who yeah you've done a lot of important stuff with already by then hadn't you i would have thought yeah tony i'd worked with tony on uh, a lot of sessions for... Because you were a total session dog for a while there, weren't you? You were like... Uh... I, I was, yeah. Uh, um... Who are you up against? It's always uh... interesting to know who are the... Like, if you're up for a session, who else was up for it? Well, who was your... Well, it was... It was quite interesting. There were some... There were, there were some very good um, people uh, people around. Nicky Hopkins, all, I guess. All a lot... Yeah, and they were all a lot older than me. Right. Uh, um, which Steve Gray, the late Steve Gray, was, I mean, I was, what, when I first started doing this, I was, what, 19 in sort of 60 or 67, I was 18. And I started then, and all the other pianists and things were, and, and organists were basically all in their 30s and 40s, which was like ancient back then. Yeah, uh, of course. What was the first session? My first session was for a guy called Jimmy Thomas, who was the original singer for I Contina Turner Band. And Jimmy's he's living in in London now. He's still around. He's got to be well in his well in his eighties. And Jimmy came over from America uh, to record an album and record a couple of singles. And he was signed by Danny Cordell. Oh uh, right. At at A and M A and M Records. And I I got I got booked by default because he some of his band were coming in and only one or two made it past the airport. 
something to do with um, not getting through customs because they had some things they shouldn't have with them. Uh, <laughs> and they, all got, they all got arrested and flown back. So it was a mate, great, it was a mate of mine who said, look, they're desperate for um, you know, an organist. Can you come and do the do it and, and i went yeah and, he, and they went oh also they need some brass arrangements can you do that and i went well yeah they went great next friday they gave me a little quarter inch tape to work with but i mean i was still at the royal college of music i didn't i didn't have a, a tape recorder so my dad lent me 30 quid to buy a, a tape recorder that was a disaster because the <laughs> tape recorder ran at seven and a half and three and three quarters and the tape was at 15 so i was bugging <laughs> before we started well, um, it's good for learning it though. Nice oh, and yeah. slow. Yeah, that's very true. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but uh, I, I got the arrangements done, and then they said, "Oh, can you book the brass players?" Well, luckily, I was playing um, at the top-ranked ballroom in the in the Ronnie Smith All Star Band, which was seventeen-piece soul band, brilliant band. Oh, that sounds great, great. great people in it, and all the brass players were were the session players during the day. And then they worked at the top rank during the during the night. They either did the top rank or the mecca circuit. So I called up one of the guys who I knew. Who I knew. I said, "Look, help, please. I'm out of my depth here. Can you book?" So he booked me. Um, and I, had a, I remember it was a trombone, a trumpet, and uh, a tenor sax that they, he booked for me. So I did the arrangement, uh, and then went to the Olympic Studios in Barnes, as it was then. I'd never been in a big boy studio before. Loads of demo studios, but not a big boy studio. And Olympic was a big boy studio. And I went in there, and there in the studio was the rem remains of um, Jimmy's band, who had not been arrested. And <laughs> and, 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 and I'll say this in the nicest sense. Uh, the only other white guy there was Denny Cordell in, in the control room. They, they just said that, uh, you do it. I said, I'm, I'm doing the hammer. They went, right, okay. Right. So they, they, Viking has come to do the hammer. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So they played, they, they, they ran the track through. If you had your cape, you would have been fine. <laughs> they, ran, they ran the track and, and I sort of played along. But I played in the only style I, I could do. And then I played it and then they did a couple of takes. And then Denny Cordell said, uh, uh, can the organ player please come into the studio? into the control room so i went in the control room and uh, i'll be honest with you i lied through the back teeth I, I said look before we go any further you you probably want like a book of tea type thing for this i can sort of do it but it's not really what i do to be brutally honest with you and danny Cordell said no that's exactly not what i want you to do i want you to do exactly what you're doing because it's different he said and, and i would suggest that you'd always try and be your own man for all of your stuff and he said um I haven't seen you around uh, in any of the studios. Uh, and I didn't lie. I sort of didn't, didn't. I said, well, I've, I've, I've been away, which is true. I'd been on holiday to Exmouth in Devon. And uh, <laughs> and, he, uh, and he went, oh, right. And then I always remember, he said, uh, I want you to come up and see me tomorrow in the Dunbarton House in Oxford Street, which was Regal's on a phone. He said, I want to have a chat with you. And I said, um, I can't. Actually, no, I was still at school. I wasn't even at the Royal College then. I said, I can't, I said, because I've got a maths exam. And he said, are you at school? And I went, oh, shit. Yeah, yeah, I'm at school. And he went, well, how important is the maths exam? I said, well, God, do it. He said, oh, are you going to do maths for a living? I went, uh, no, no, I'm not. He said, well, he said, at nine o'clock tomorrow morning, I'll know when you arrive at 68 Dumbarton House, whether you really want to be a musician uh, or you want to take your maths exam. 
and I was there at half past seven in the morning <laughs> outside his door and, and went in and he introduced me to Tony Visconti as is the long ah. answer to your question yeah, he introduced yeah. me to Tony Visconti and Gus Dudgeon who were the two staff producers wow. up there and that was it and then uh, Tony uh, he introduced me to bands like Junior's Eyes which I did stuff for we were just talking about that before you came on Gary was talking about what was yeah, the track Gary didn't Junior's eyes were from Hull, weren't they? The sort of predecessors of the Spiders from Mars. Spider, they yeah. were, they were, they were very much indeed, and they were a good band too. Uh, they, they were a very good band. And uh, Battersea Power Station was the album, wasn't it? Yeah, was Battersea you... Power Station, which has just appeared on CD. I mean, it was it, we recorded it at Morgan Studios before Morgan had really been built properly, um, and it was. Uh, uh, it was just, it was just great. I went along there and did that, and that is where, in the corner, they just had delivered a, a Mellotron, and all the Mellotrons originally were double manual things, uh, and it was in the corner. So I'd done my bit, and they were doing stuff in the control room, and uh, and I said to, to the engineer that I can't remember who it was, and I said, um, any chance of having a look at that Mellotron in the corner? He said, yeah, yeah, help yourself. He said, we're going to be in here. We're not going to, you won't disturb us. He said, but you won't keep it in tune. Nightmare, we can't. He says, so I, I went over and plugged it in and played away and then... Strawberry fields. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Did all the usual crap. And then <laughs> sussed out reasons why it wouldn't stay in tune. And then what what you could do to sort of cheat it a bit. Well, because it's the it tape, in. isn't it? It's the tape wall. Yeah, it was the tape. The yeah, but the, one of the things is instead of... It really played block chords and things on it, uh, which wasn't the right thing to do. If you play uh, like a four-note chord, literally every two seconds, you release one one of the keys. So you've still got your chords and, and then do another one. So in other words, you're constantly changing the. Then you don't get the eight-second delay. And also, it's not a strain on the motor. Uh, which, yeah. which is why it goes out during the one. Smooth it out, and it and it worked. And I sussed out. And Tony Visconti came and he went, "How are you keeping that in tune?" And I said, "Well, I said no, don't tell me." He said, "He said you'll learn out from you'll learn from that." I went, oh, "Okay." And then it was uh, beginning of 1969. I was still at, at the top ranked ballroom, but this time I was at, in Reading. Previous to that, I'd been at Watford, and I was at and and I got we were. I was down there one afternoon. Uh, why was I down there? Oh, I can't remember. Anyway, I got a call, um, and it was from Tony Visconti. He said, you're wanted at Trident Studios uh, with Ken Scott, and uh, I, I think um, Gus was down there. Uh, and he said, David, who I'd met once up at Regal's, is doing a new single. They, he wants a Mellotron on it. They can't keep it in tune. And uh, I, I said, you can. I went, oh. Great, thank you. That's an amazing it, thing. The guy who can play a Mellotron in tune. In tune, I know. Well, that's a <laughs> so I, 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 I just drove... Tony Dunty wasn't producing. He, produced, no. he was producing the Space Oddity album, but he didn't like that single, did he? Yeah. He didn't. No, so, he didn't. But so he, why is he booking the session? Well, he and, he and, he and Gus Judgment were great friends. And one of the things that were really on it, if, 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 if Tony had something that he thought Gus could do a better job with, He'd pass it over, and the same with Gus. They did pass a lot of stuff around. So I went up there. Tony wasn't there. And I always remember I walked in and David said, um, you'll, find, uh, you'll find this a piece of cake. I went, oh, great. And he said, have you ever played a piece of cake before? <laughs> and I said, oh, it's going to be one of those sessions. Is it? And so oh, that's I did, Barry said that to you, did he? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so we did it. It's, it's, it's very simple to, to play and, and do. And I fiddled around and kept the thing in tune. Um, Dave was really happy, and then afterwards he, he said, um, 
he said, I've heard some of your piano playing. Would you like to do some piano stuff for me? And I said, yeah, crikey, I'd love to. Uh, so a lot of it all stemmed from that, that Mellotron. And I kept on working for, for both Gus and Tony Visconti and, of course, Ken. Because you did get it on with Mark Bonin. I had yeah. no idea. You know, that was, I think, the second single I ever bought, Rick. I mean, that was, you know, such an important record in my life. And yeah. I didn't know you won it. Well, I was, it was during a period of time where I was financially embarrassed, which was interesting at the time because I hadn't yet started getting divorced. Um, and I, I was up in London because I was eight pounds short for my, for my rent for Mrs. Cleary in Ilford, well Gants Hill where I where, where I had a flat. Very Hancock, Mrs. Cleary in Ilford. Yeah, Mrs. <laughs> Mrs. Cleary. Uh, I'm trying to think of the name of the name of the road. Uh, Oil Drum Lane. It wasn't far <laughs> off it. Yeah, um, she she uh, she was a, a widower at the top of the house, <coughs> and I live with my wife in the. In the bottom part, but had very little. Um, well, you had great weeks doing sessions, then you had some terrible weeks. I never put anything to one side. The only thing I put to one side was my glasses in the in the pub when I'd had another drink. So it was it was. Um, I, ne I never had any spare cash, and this was a particularly bad a bad week, a bad month. I was eight pounds short, and I went up to to London on the train from Gants Hill. And then I went all down Tim Pan Alley, down Denmark Street, to Southern Music and Places, because there was always a demo session or something going. You could always earn a couple of quid from a demo session for a couple. So I went, amazing, nothing going. So I went to Regal's on a phone. They had a little demo studio as well. Um, and I spoke to the guys up there. I said, anything out there? Nothing. There's absolutely nothing. And Mark was up there, Mark, Mark Boland, uh, who I knew. And... Uh, and we, he said, come on, let's go and have a, have a... So we went, there was a wimpy bar on the corner, the opposite corner to um, uh, Dumbarton House. And we went in there and uh, uh, I, I think he bought a, a, he bought the bottle of Coke and two straws and uh, sort of drank that. And then I'm now thinking, right, all I can do now is hang around in London until I know Mrs. Cleary's gone to bed and then get the last train down to Gant's Hill and like sneak in the door. This, this, oh, the you know, glamour. Oh, the glamour. The, the, the unrock and rollness of this is just it's fantastic. Well, what happened was, I went up, I was just, I was leaving, and in fact, I was walking back down Oxford Street towards, from Dumbarton House, towards uh, not um, Tottenham Court Road Station, and Tony Visconti was there. Okay, he said, Rick, session tonight in Trident Studios, midnight, for Mark Boland doing a new single. He wants you to do the piano. I went, I love you. This is this is because that's nine quid. You see, that's not only have I got the eight quid for the rent, but I've got I've got a drink on it as well. You know, so I went I went to the studio. This is absolutely true. I went in there and went down and there's his band, all the usual guy who I knew playing, and and Mark ran through the ran through the song on his guitar, and then they're all like joining in and things. And I said, Mark, he said, what? I said, there is no piano on this. There is no piano part at all. I, I said, trust me, if I could find something that would work, it would, but anything on there would take away from the rawness of what you're trying to achieve. And he said, oh, all I want you to do is this. And they ran it through again, and he ran a glist from the top of the piano to the bottom. He said, I want you to do that every time I nod at you. <laughs> and I said, that's very kind of you. I said, but you could do that. He said, well, do you want your nine quid or not? Yeah, exactly. I'm saying no, you're your own worst enemy here, Rick. And I said, well, yeah. He said, look, 
I could give you the nine quid, I'll loan it to you. He said, but you wouldn't take it, would you? I said, well, no, probably not. He says, right, so you can earn it. You can sit here till three in the morning doing glisses. So <laughs> that's what I did. I mean, it was lovely. I mean, that was the sort of the camaraderie that was around at the time. That's it nice. was brilliant. Taking the gliss. <laughs> Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. You went to Haddon Hall, didn't you, when Bowie had written the Aggie Dory album? Because this is just incredible. This, this, this is really you in the making, isn't it? Your real identity. Well, yeah, I mean, it was it was very interesting because I, I, I still get quite emotional about Haddon Hall because it's gone now. They've pulled it down. Uh, contrary to a lot of beliefs, David didn't own it. He rented it. Yeah. Uh, so it was the owners who pulled it down. Bloody stupid. And it wasn't because it sounds quite grand, doesn't it? But it, was, but it, was it wasn't big, grand. No, exactly. It, but, but in a strange way, it was for me because it had like a minstrel's gallery and all, all that kind of thing. And, and I'm living in a in a really small little terraced house in West Harrow. Uh, so, yeah, it, it did seem glamorous to me when I went. And he, he called me up and said, I'm doing a new album and I want it to be very piano orientated. Can you come around the house in, in Beckenham? So I said, yeah, he said, bring... He said, bring, it, bring your wife. Uh, he said, because Aggie's here, because uh, it's just been born. The, the, yeah, the boy yeah, had just, Duncan, just yeah. come into the world. And uh, so we went round there, and my missus at the, at the time, they you know, played play with Aggie and the, and, the, and the kid. And we went up to the minstrel's gallery, we had a nice grand piano, and he had a battered old 12-string guitar. He said, let me play you these songs. He said, make some notes. And I brought some manuscript paper and uh, so wrote down notes and calls and things that went along, one after the other. And I just said, these great songs. They said, yeah, new album, it's going to be hunky-dory, but I want it to be very much, in many cases, piano-orientated. So we played all through it, and then he came, to, <laughs> he played me Life on Mars. And it, did, he, know, did he play that on the guitar? Yeah. That's, yeah. I mean, it's yeah. the most complicated song ever written. Yeah, it, it, <laughs> it is quite good, but he... he, he, he he sort of played it on the guitar. And by this time, I'd, I'd got used to his writings because I'd done things like Wild Eye Boy from Free Cloud with him and Memorable wow, Free Festival. Wow, 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 so wow. I, knew how, I, knew how he, I knew how he thought. Isn't that with a pump organ, the Wild, wild Eye boy, boy from Sorry? Has that got a pump A harmonium. Pump it's a harmonium. I, did, I think there is a harmonium on it as well as piano. And, and Telly Visconti did a great orchestral arrangement of it as well. Which is which is really good on the, on the on that track. Um, yeah, he played me live on my, and uh, <laughs> and I said, what a great song! And he said, oh, thank you. He said, play it through on the piano. I said, and I, I said, how do you want me to play it? And he said, you know how I want you to play it. I said, no, I'm asking you how you want me to play it. So I play it. He said, you know how I want you to play it. Play it. 
So I played it through. He said, that's how I want you to play it. Wow. He said, and he gave me one bit of advice, which I've tried to keep to as best as possible. He said, when you're doing something, and it's like, he said, always think of the musicians who are going to play it. And always pick on musicians that what you think will understand what you're trying to achieve. You can have the best musicians in the world, but if they don't understand what you're trying to achieve, you're not going to get that. Wow. So he said, uh, he said, that's what I do all the time. He said, so that's that's why I knew that you'd play it as I as I wanted it, whether you realised it or not. Well, Rick, um, can I just say one little thing? Because that is, it's like, you know, one of the great piano performances of all time. And in fact, it's now such an accepted part of fabric of life when my son did his grade six piano exam that was his he was accepted prepared piece to do oh brilliant yeah, yeah. oh that's brilliant uh, i i know that the, the day before it was recorded uh mick ronson who was sort of i think he was he, he slept up on the minstrels gallery uh, and uh and he 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 was up all night frantically trying to write that string arrangement because mick wrote that string arrangement did you he did did you work together with him on that at no all? Uh, but I did work closely with Mick. Mick and I got on great. We got on really, really, really well. So the, the whole band, Woody and, uh, and Trevor, they all stayed at, at, at Haddon Hall. They, they, they all stayed there and rehearsed, practiced, drank, and did other illicit things. Uh, they were. It was. Uh, it was a, an, an amazing place. But uh, Mick, I got on great with 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 Mick, and we talked a lot about. Um, one of the reasons the arrangement was late is because um, David wanted it very much to be around the piano which was one of the things that was quite interesting that I had a lot of people say to me oh you must have spent hours and hours working out the piano parts for that around everything else that was going on and the truth of the matter is that everybody had to work around me because that's how David wanted it so I actually had the had the easy task right right who was on the telephone at the end who was oh, yeah, yeah. The, tele the telephone well basically it was a side room with a telephone in it and uh what happened was at the end of one of the takes, the telephone rang, and of course it ended up on the on the on the on the mastered, uh, well on, on the multi-track. Um, but then, uh, as you know, back then, tape was bloody expensive, and everybody was under some sort of budget. So what you did, if you had a, a series of tapes that you knew you were never going to keep because they weren't good enough, you ran the tape back and ran it again. Yeah. Uh, which is exactly what happened until the take we got that everybody was delighted with. You know, especially Ken Scott and uh, and uh, and Tony, they were really delighted with that take. And then, um, of course, when they played it back, when the tape stopped, there was the phone from the previous ages ago, <laughs> right, still right. there. And and they went, oh God, how do we? What do we do there? And Dave said, keep it. He said, just keep it. I like it. He said, meant yeah. to be. So that's that's why it's there. And it's really funny. I spoke to Ken uh, last year. No, the beginning of this year. And I said, did anybody ever find out whoever it was on the phone? He said, no. He said, they're probably still hanging on now. I've got no clue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. we're, we're gonna, um, we're gonna have, we've got to get to yes. So, you know, we, we, we have, yeah. I mean, oh. listen, there's, there's one story on the way, though, that I just, I did find out today, that you bought your first mini-move from the Artful Dodger. Oh, that's right, from Jack Wilde. Is that yeah. true? And, yeah, 30 quid. And um, did, what? Well, I joined, I joined, I just joined Yes... And I needed a mini Moog, and I. I oh, you say Moog? You're of the Moog school. Yeah. Well, I've well, spoken to to Bob when he was alive about this, and and his daughter. He's got three daughters, and he can he could never remember their names, so they went on as Mini Moog One, Mini Moog Two, and Mini Moog Three. <laughs> and Michelle is Mini Moog Three, and I spoke to Michelle in the in the, the middle one. Said, should have been Midi Moog. <laughs> 
Oh, excellent. Yeah, yeah. And I spoke to Michelle, and I, I, and I spoke to Bob as well. I said, is it Moog or Moog? And he said, I don't mind. He said, oh. whatever people want, it's fine by me. So nobody truly really ever knows whether it's me. I mean, I spoke to Michelle. I said, what do you do, Michelle? She said, well, I, it's just whatever anybody calls me, really. But hang on, hang on. Jack Wilde, the artful yeah. dodger. All right, OK. How this came about. HR Puff and stuff, more the point. That's it. Vote. Yeah. He was, and yeah, <laughs> he, uh, well, what I was, so, yes, was signed to Hemdale, which was David Hemmings and, and, and John uh, Daly management. And that's why you ended up using David Hemmings on, uh, on Jones's yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And uh, we, um, and we were signed and also signed to Hemdale was, um, uh, Black Sabbath. And, uh, uh there's there quite a few bits floating, floating around. And they also, um, uh, the manager of you yes, played with them. Was that was that through was that through that? Didn't you you work with Sabbath? Didn't you? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's sort sorry. Of, sorry. Slightly. I mean, I just became great friends with all okay, of the guys right. and did stuff with them, and still am. In fact, my son Adam's been with them twenty one right, years that's now. That's right. So yeah. There you go. But the uh, yeah. So uh, where was I? Hemdale. Something. Uh, uh, Jack Wild. Jack Wild. Jack Wild. I was just going to ask you what my name was. Jack Wild. <laughs> well, he, he was he was signed to them as, as well. He was off um, doing stuff and stuff, and he and Brian Lay, my manager, called me up and he said, "Do you want to buy a mini Moog? Do you know what it is?" And I said, "Yeah." He said, "Would well, you want to buy one?" I said, "Well, I said they're over a thousand pounds. I've got a thousand pounds. I then just joined yes and he said, "Well," um, and we were getting, I was getting twenty-eight pound a week with straws, so I said, "I can't afford a mini Moog." He said, um, "Very, it's very cheap." I said, "Well, how cheap?" He said, thirty quid." I said, well, what's wrong with it? Everything. He said, no, it's it's still all wrapped up, really. Uh, he said, um, it just doesn't work, apparently, Jack said. And he just said, uh, would I like it? Get rid of it. So I said, well, I'll get, I thought, well, 30 quid. I'll give you 30 quid. Even if it doesn't work, I'll put it on stage because it'll look bloody good. <laughs> so I went, I went up to um, South Street in London, in Mayfield, where the offices were. And I picked up this mini mug and I got it back to my house in West Harren. I, I saw it was mint and I thought okay so I plugged it in and I thought I'll leave it on soak 24 hours and see where I put the heavos in and it worked perfectly couldn't find anything wrong with it so I thought well I'll leave it on soak see what happens in the morning try it again absolutely perfectly I tried in the afternoon absolutely perfectly nothing wrong with it so I phoned up Brian my, my manager I said Brian uh, I've got to tell you that it's mini mode I said there's nothing wrong with it I said, I've given it on soap. I've given it lots of tests. I've given it all the usual batteries. There is nothing wrong with it. He said, well, I'll, I'll call Jack. He's in America. So he called Jack and he came back to me. He said, Jack said it doesn't work. I said, well, it does. What, what is it that he says doesn't work? He said, Jack said it only plays one note at a time. It won't. <laughs> and, I said, and I said, Brian, it's a monophonic instrument. That means it plays one note at a time. Nobody makes polyphonic Synthesizer thing. Oh, he thought he was going to sit there playing. Consider yourself. Yeah, yeah. that's right. And, <laughs> and uh, so Brian said, "I'll call him back." So Brian called him back, came back to me, and said, uh, uh, "Jack said it was no effing good to me. Tell Rick he can have it for thirty quid." 
Oh, so, I, I, was, I was hoping on a story where the two of you were in the bag of nails and he sold it for drink. <laughs> <laughs> no, the, 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 I mean, it was interesting. I mean, I had met Jack before because I'd played on some of his records. Of course you, know, you I, had. <laughs> I, I, I did. I did the, the the bicycle bell, which was one with him, which was the the, the bicycle song, which is which was bloody awful, but that number nine quid, um, and I, and I got his minimum. That was my first minimum. Because you ended up with like four. I was funny because yesterday I was watching your um, uh, Six Wives of Henry the Eighth, and it's and you and I because I remember just when I was a kid just being so impressed by your rig. <laughs> And and you had some like four mini moves, and of course now looking at it, you realise the type like you're playing this melody, and then you start playing a harmony, and of course in order to play a harmony, you've got to be on another mini mook. Yeah, <laughs> so it's the only way to do it. Yeah, yeah, but it was it was great. I mean, it, the hardest thing when I first went out with multi keyboards was nobody made keyboard stands, so I used to buy a chest of drawers <laughs> in 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 uh, rummage shops, take the drawers out. We used to alter the thing so we could slot the, the keyboards in because there was no other way to do it. Nobody made stands or anything. Shows how <laughs> bloody old I am. You know, you know, I can't believe we haven't got to yes yet, but there's no one else to blame for the length of this podcast other than yourself, Rick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but when you left Straubs and went, that's what I love about those days when keyboard players were real heroes. You know, the when you left Straubs and went to Yes, that was front page news and all. It was like a football transfer, wasn't it? In those <laughs> yeah. days. Well, it, it was weird because, as you might, might, or probably might know or not know, uh, on the same day, uh, David asked me to to form Spiders from Mars That's, with yeah. him and Mick, uh, which was very weird. Which I, which I suppose it's equivalent now being, you know, to want to sign for Manchester City or Chelsea, I suppose. Yeah, but it was, yeah. it was, it was a bizarre, bizarre thing. But yes. I just felt, yes. Hang on, can I just add something here, Rick, which is that surely it's a great compliment to you that the Spiders then went on without a keyboard player. They did, yeah. It's like the, um, no, Garson turned up on the, during the American tour. Well, yeah, the world wouldn't yeah. have had Mike Garson if you yeah. hadn't have... If, that's you know. true. I know, I know yeah. Mike well. Yeah, yeah that, that's true. But initially, when they went out on the Spiders tour, they didn't really do stuff from Hunky Dory. Yeah. It was very much a Spiders... I mean, I did a couple of tracks on the Spiders album, um, and they didn't really... He, he 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 went back to being a very much a, uh, a guitar. It was very Mick Ronson led. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. But, in, but in fact, because Hunky Dory didn't really take off till after Ziggy no, Stardust, did it? So I was saying, because no, it must have been disappointing at the time. Because I mean, it's it's an you know absurdly brilliant album, and it must have been very disappointing that it because it didn't happen, did it, when it came out? But it's, that's happened a lot in the early days with David. Um, yeah. Interestingly enough, I mean, when you consider. Space Oddity, first time around, yeah. um, I got that number four or something. And it wasn't until 19, was it 85? Sorry, 1975. No, 73. Yeah, 1973. Wasn't it? I thought it was 73, I think. Re-release, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but it, it, uh, yeah when, it went, when it finally got to number one. So it's not uncommon for David. And, and Hunky Dory was, was at the time really an acquired taste. It had to be something that you had to go... What's this? There's nothing else quite like it around. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the things was David's influences. When I was around at Haddon Hall, I, you know, we, I went around quite a few times. We chatted a lot. Uh, uh, Sorry, I've backtracked us. I've taken us back to Haddon Hall now. Yeah, oh, but he's emotional about Haddon Hall. I know, I know. Well, love it. Just the one thing. It's the Haddon I mean, Hall I special. I asked him what, um, who his influences were. <clears> and he played me a track and I thought it was David. And I said, oh, when did you do this? He said, it's not me. He said it's a guy called Biff Rose. Oh, oh yes, yes. And Song, Biff Rose, uh, song for uh, Biff. Song for Biff. That's it. 
uh, and there was filial filial heart with joy, which is a Biff Rose song. If you get hold of a of a Biff Rose album and listen oh. on certain tracks, you'll go. You can play it to people. They go, well, "That's David. Very interesting." Um, but anyway, um, going back to uh, to yes, so I went. I went. I decided to go for yes because a. Um, I always think, for me, music is is give and take. You've got to be able to give as much to the music as you can take out of it. And I did feel that, uh, obviously, with David, much as I love playing David's stuff, David's tracks, and David's music, and 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 having a lot of free freedom to be able to play whatever I liked. In the nicest sense, as much as I love David's songs, it would always be David. There will be a, a ceiling as to how far mm-hmm. I could go and what to do. Whereas with Yes, who um, in fact, as Strauss, we supported Yes in Hull uh, once, uh, uh, and uh, I'm watching the band and thinking, this is a very different band. Uh, this is a band that, um, well, I, I, I think I could, I'd love to be able to offer certain things too. Because you took over from down. Tony Kay, didn't you? You took over from Tony Kay on the Fragile. Yeah, uh, Tony, great player, and he's a, he's a, he's very much a rock player in, and. Uh, and I wasn't thinking much about it, but certainly Bill, Steve, and, and Chris were very much of the orchestral nature. And I thought I, I could have a field day here, but never thought much about it. And then I got a call from Chris two o'clock in the morning, which is roughly when Chris gets up or used to. And uh, <laughs> and he went, uh, Chris Squire, yes. Here. I went, do you know what the time is? And he went, yeah, it's two o'clock in the morning. And I went, well, I've got to be up at half past five. I've got a session in London. He said, oh, he said, we're just back from America. He said, and we want to go much more down the orchestral rock route and thought that um, it might be something that might interest you. And I said, well, it does, but not at half past two in the bloody morning. <laughs> um, and he went, oh, I'll, I'll call you again later then. And I went, yeah. And it was later on, in fact, it was the Brian Lane manager who called me. And said, "Did you get a call from Chris?" I said, "Yeah, up past two in the morning." He went, "Yeah, sounds like him." And, and he said, "What do you think?" And I said, "Well, yeah." I, I said, "I do love the band. Uh, the Yes album had come out and done right." I said, "I really do like what they're doing. I do feel that I, you know, that if they want to go in the orchestral directions, kind of the orchestral rock direction, that you know, it's a sort of you know direction that I'm looking at going in. So it would be, it will, it would work all the way around." And I said, but, you know, we've got to make sure it's going to work for everybody. So what we did, um, they had a rehearsal place booked in <laughs> in Shepherd's Market in Mayfair, uh, which was above what I thought was a shop, um, but turned out not to be a shop because even though it was summer, there were lots of women in fur coats walking outside in and out. And uh, and the crew kept vanishing. So I realised suddenly it was not actually, a, it wasn't a sweet shop. Well, it was, I suppose, in some respects. It was a shop, but uh, it just had the word knocking in front of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, and uh, but the first the first two days when I was there, um, we had, uh, we pretty much put together Roundabout and Heart of the Sunrise. I thought, I like this. It's like a big wow. jigsaw puzzle pieces going together. And I used to run Steve back to his, his flat in Hampstead because Steve never drove back then. Uh, so we did that. And then on the second day, they said, um, look, how, how do you feel about this? And I said, I'm really enjoying this. And I think there's, there's I, 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 so I'd like to think that I've got things to offer. Certainly the music's got, and the ideas have got a lot to offer to me. So I think it could, it could work. And they said, well, we're really happy. So I said, great. And that night was when David had called me and said, can you meet me at Hampstead Country Club with Mick Ronson? I want to talk to you about something. What a crossroads. I know. So I sat down with 
with Mick and and uh, and, and David. And David said um, they were they were doing a little duo thing there for fun. And he said, uh, "Look, we got the, the, this idea of uh, spiders from Mars. You know that because you've done a couple of the tracks. Would you, you know, and I you said I'd really like you and Mick to sort of put it all together and be with Trevor and Woody and that kind of thing. How do you feel?" And I, I said, God, bloody hell, this is turning into quite a day. And he said, well, I said, well, yes, I've just asked me to join them. Did the landlord get her money that day? I think she... <laughs> yeah, and he said, he said um, well, have a think and get back to me. Uh, and in the meantime, I, uh, they went up and I got up and, and did a couple of tracks with them on the, on the stage. They had a piano or a keyboard there and I did something, which was great. And I thought about it long and hard and I thought, well, I've got, there's more I can do with 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 yes and there is with david much as david was the most influential person i ever worked with uh so i called him up the next day and, and told him and he said absolutely the right decision and interestingly enough when i lived in switzerland he was a very close neighbor and we used to meet a lot down a little club called the museum club in montreux and put the world to rights and uh, we met a lot and talked to him a lot about it. he said you know he said you absolutely made 100 percent the right decision he, he said, uh, because all the different projects that came on after, he said, I changed the band anyway. He said, so the chances are you'd be out of work now anyway. And he yeah. said, remember what I told you, always pick the musicians that are right for whatever job it is you're doing. And he said, so I chopped and changed around a lot. He said, yeah, he said, I think you would have enjoyed yourself in Spiders, but it was the wrong decision. You made Rick, absolutely I, I, right. Rick, I just want to ask you a little sidebar question, which, which is because... Guy and I love prog. We love progressive music, whatever it was called initially. But, you know, who began, do you think? Because, you know, it could be you. You could be the guy who brought that classical Baroque, mixed it with folk, mixed it with rock, and that scene started and went into Genesis. Or was it Keith in Nice doing, you know, Five Bridges? Where do you think it was? I think it's a, it's a, a mixture of all of it. I think it's, it's a mixture of all of these little tributaries running into a into a sort of an estuary and then into a river i think it's, I, it's, i've heard you say before that you actually thought pink floyd were the birth of prog i, I think pink floyd certainly played a massive part when they first started because mm. it seemed to me that um uh, that they they were one of the first bands to sort of because they'd all played in so they'd all played popular music they all knew what popular music was so they knew the rules but were quite happy to break them yeah but it wasn't it wasn't the music whereas your thing was more expanding the musical horizons wasn't it it was yeah, yeah very much so i mean i think i mean to, to me the definition of prog is is knowing the rules and then breaking them i mean it doesn't mean to say you you can't still break them but it's hard to break them if you don't know what they are because you can break them properly, which is what a lot of the Eastern European classical composers did. There's a, a, a wonderful book called uh, Art and Principles of Orchestration, which Rimsky Korsakov oh, wrote. Yeah, yeah. And it basically, uh, it breaks, shows how he, he broke every rule that there was. And I love that. And, I, I, and that's the principle I work on. And the interesting thing is, of course, it was at a period of time when it was very much, there was a singles market and there was an, a, an album market. And the singles market was still very much of the pop era to a lot of extent, still a lot of beat bands and that floating around. And the music was, to a large extent, formatted, you know, with uh, intro, verse, chorus, solo, intro, verse, uh, fade out if you can't think of an ending, that kind of thing. And uh, and the albums were, 
you could have longer tracks and do all that kind of thing. I'm going to I'm going to jump you uh, one of your jokes, guy. You know what, what do you call the first ten minutes of a yes song? Well, Introduction. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Where did the cape come from? We're going to talk come about on, the cape. Because it is, I was thinking, it's actually the with Prague, there are, it's like the greatest trope, right? Well, there's two. There's the cape and the gong. That's it. Those are the two things that just scream prog, aren't they? But but I had I had a little band at school, and my and my mate Jess Bailey, he was on the keyboards, and you know we 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 start he got, had to get another keyboard to make that L shape. He wore the cape, you know. But apparently, actually, I heard an interview with you where you actually said it's actually a very very pragmatic reason for having a cape. And there is, yeah. there is absolutely. Uh, basically, it was my first Yes tour, nineteen seventy one, and. Uh, Again, there were no keyboard stands or anything, so I had all this furniture around. I was like a walking advert for IKEA. What, and so and you were going to wear your keyboards in a cape, like Flash Harry. <laughs> well, no, but what happened was all keyboards then basically did one thing. There wasn't yeah. presets, anything like that, or programming. So basically, it took forever to set them up. And and so what I did, I had a, a, a every every keyboard that would take a sustain pedal had one. Um, and also you had to have a volume pedal on them because they were all so noisy because none of the lineouts matched at all. So it was a ridiculous right. amount of noise that came out. So I had all these pedals. So if I wasn't using something, I'd sort of, with the foot, get them the sound off. So at, at least the sound of the keyboard could be louder than the, the, the hums, noises and buzzes that came <laughs> out. Uh, but because of the keyboard, they were all balanced up and uh, the, the pedals were all of different lengths with the cabling. I had them up on sort of bits of plinth and bits of wood. So when I when I played, there was one leg up, and I couldn't do it now. One leg up, and yeah, I I got into positions that, uh, oh, crikey, Kama Sutra. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, I rewrote it. It was the uh, the um, and it was um, everything was fine. I was quite happy sticking arms up, looking, at, and then we were fourth on the bill to like ten years after and a few other bands in 1971, basically playing when people were coming in. Uh, which was great. So you never got a review. I never. Got. But then suddenly we got a review. Don't ask me where I went a while, huh? but we got this review and it was really nice. It said um, the uh, the opening band were a band called Yes from England. It was very kind. So what fine musicians went through. So it's you know, unusual a player Steve was with what he did, and the same with <clears throat> with Bill, Bill Riven, and, and uh, you know everybody. And then of course with John having an alto voice, which was very unusual for. You know, uh, for a rock band and Chris's bass, which was basically treble turned full up, <laughs> bass turned full up, and all the middle wound out. And, mm -hmm. they, and they wrote, and then he wrote some very nice things about me, uh, about technically what I did, and said my only criticism of Wakeman would be that because his arms and legs seemed to have to go to all over the place in order to reach his pedals and do things, he he did at times appear to look like a demented spider, <laughs> and. And I went, what's that? And the following night when we played, I was very conscious of this. And we're like, well, shit, he's right. I am. His arms and legs. I was going into positions that you just really wouldn't even think about. And I thought, well, there's nothing I can do about it. And I and I spoke to, to Michael Tate uh, from Tate Towers, a great lighting guy, and uh, who was on the road with us. And Mike said, we've got to find a solution to this. He said, it may be that we may have to build like a, the sort of a, a turret round all the keyboards so that people actually can't see their legs. <laughs> he said, that might work. That's very prog, an actual castle. Yeah, <laughs> a little castle. And then he, he, uh, then we played Hartford, Connecticut, in a, li uh, a little baseball stadium, 
which ironically I passed two weeks ago uh, when I went through Hartford to get to somewhere else in Connecticut. Um, and uh, a little minor league, league, league ground. And they were holding a festival there, uh, which was all, everything being introduced by the local DJ, which they all were back then. <clears throat> and we were one of about a dozen bands on. So we're waiting to go on. And I noticed that the guy uh, doing the introduction, the, the DJ, had a cape on. It's a three-quarter length cape with a big star and a moon on the back. And I didn't think much about it. I thought, oh, that's interesting. And then uh, after he'd introduced us, he, t he turned around and he was, how can I put it politely, he was on the large size. He was uh, large size. He was, well, he was... He was large big. and in charge. Absolutely. He was big. <laughs> uh, and, I, and I remember thinking as he walked over to the side of the stage where I was thinking, that cape hides a multitude of sins. <laughs> There's one. So he came and we and just shins. yeah we were on we were on the, we were on two hundred dollars a week and then uh, we had to pay everything out all our food and drinks and pay everything out of that and and I'd got ten twenty dollar bills we'd just been paid in my back pocket and he he came to the side of the stage I said I want to buy your cake and he said it's not for sale I said <laughs> and I did the old wheeler dealers thing I took out the the the, the, the um. Uh, the, the 10 20 dollar bill i said i've just been paid this is all the money i've got in the world i will not be able to eat this week i want to buy your cape and he looked at the money and went you're all right then so i gave him the money meanwhile the bad guy in ape shit because we only had 30 minutes to play and i've already wasted 10 of it doing a deal with this with, with the cape man <laughs> i was so I, I put it on and of course on me he was only about two foot seven on me it was only a half length cape so i, I walked on and, and played and it sort of felt really quite good, sitting around the shoulders and things it covered. And Michael Tate came back after, he said, that's the answer, but not that. He said, first of all, not a, a short cape, three quarter length or half length. He said, it needs to be full length. It needs to be heavy. It needs to be something that, will, that can work with lights. And he said, that's what you need. And if you do that, then we're, we're, we're there. And I said, well, where am I going to get a cape? Like that? He said, I know, I know a girl who makes them. She's a designer and she'll make them for you. She's in Cleveland. We're playing Cleveland. I'll introduce you and she'll make it for you. And that's how the first cape came about. All of the uh, major shows I did, there was a new cape came along. Wow. Wow. Which the band wow. used to find Do you hilarious. still have to? Is there sort of the Rick Wakeman Museum of Capes? There is. There is a, a, a wardrobe with five of the six, what I call classic capes in. It's hard to get them insured. I mean, I've been offered... Oh, tell me about it. Ludicrous money for it. But, but um, what I think it represents as well, I mean, to me as a kid, there was, it was, I, everything you did was only serious. To me, it was, there was a serious reason that you just looked incredible in this cape. Superhero stuff. But I suppose, really, it sort of revealed a bit of your humorous side as well, didn't it, Rick? Which, as a person, you are. Yeah. But, it, but I, I, this is going to sound really, really strange. But I, I don't. When I'm doing the one-man show or the, or the piano shows or whatever, I don't wear a cape because it's really hard at the piano. Because you know, it, it's, it's so bloody heavy, they make you want to fall inside it. <clears throat> but when I do, when I do the band shows and rock shows, it's really strange. It's. Um, I was talking to an actor friend of my great friend Peter Egan, and, the, and we were, we sort of compared it a bit like if, if he's playing Henry V in Shakespeare, he can do all the rehearsals, all the various things. When he walks on in the costume, yeah, 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 yeah. Suddenly yeah. you're there, and and Dave Bowie always said, "Be a different person on stage to off," and he did it by actually changing characters, which was absolutely brilliant. Uh, and you do feel I don't I feel 
underdressed if I haven't got a cape on. Yeah. It was like Adam Adamant, isn't it, in his cape at the beginning? You know, it's <laughs> yeah. <that's> yeah. <laughs> I saw you recently, uh, just a couple of years. Dr. Three, Fibes. Three years ago, wearing it on the, at the O2 when you were there with Yes as well. It's, oh, uh, yeah, yeah, we did. Me. I would have been disappointed if you hadn't been. Oh, it had to be. I mean, I had I had some major. The funniest one, the most daring and ridiculous one, was when we, for my 70th birthday, where we redid um, George Sent to the Earth at the Festival Hall again. We did a couple of nights there with the orchestra, choir, and kitchen sink, and whatever. And uh, and that was really great fun. And I had some, I had the uh, uh, an original cape for that, which was which was good. I, I wore two. But the most ridiculous was back in 2009 when I did uh, Henry VIII, uh, All the Six Wives at Hampton Court, and I booked these actresses to play the wives. And after we, we sort of walked on, my manager said, well, what, what are you going to do with them now? They, 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 you know, you're just going to have them hanging around doing doing nothing. And uh, he said, come up with something. And he said, how many cape changes you got? I said, well, two at the moment, that's all. He said, well, why don't you have a cape change for every track? <laughs> he said, so you've got six wives and you've got a Henry track and you've got an encore. So eight cape changes. So I had eight cape changes with uh, where they uh, each one of the wives walked on with a with, with a different cape. One took one off, and the other one put one on. I mean, it was so glad. Mark Bolan would have been delighted. Rick, Rick, eight cape man. Yeah, that'll do. <laughs> you know what? This is killing me, guy. Because because I thought you know we've got to, we've got to have to get onto the solo albums. We've got to do the solo. I'd say yeah, because, because this is in parallel, isn't it? You're, this is an extraordinary thing. You you join yes. And you're kind of straight into these solo albums, which are always huge themes. Was they that were, something called it? No. Do you remember? Because I remember really distinctly seeing uh, Rick doing uh, Six King Wives. On, oh, was it Six? No, Six Wives on uh, Old Grey Whistle Test. Oh, well, that's quite oh yeah, right. yeah, that, yeah, yeah. Well, that's legendary. Yeah, and how brilliant that was. Yeah. yeah, it was really good. I mean, the, the thing was, all the best things are never really planned. They happen. And what the situation was, a lot of record companies had been... Uh, taken for a bit of a ride by bands and managers when by a band um, signing a deal and then one of the guys leaving to form his own band and going and doing another deal somewhere and then that band disbanding after the record company laid out a load of money to the original band. Uh, and so record companies started to get a bit cute about that and A&M were, were one and when they signed a band, they signed the band uh, both as a band and uh, severally as well as individuals but the individuals were all on uh, options so if the record company if somebody left the record company had an option to to get them to to do something um uh or just let them go and basically it was on that yes first yes tour in 1971 we were in los angeles and my manager bra he said we've got a message from AM. jerry moss wants to see you at AM records so went down to see jerry moss who was a lovely, lovely guy. And uh, uh, their offices, their lot, it was great. AM Records were on what they was called The Lot, which was Charlie Chaplin's film studios. Yeah, That's yeah, right. I, mixed yeah, yeah. In, I mixed an album in there. It's beautiful. Oh, I did. A, a brilliant, brilliant place. And it, it was interesting because, I won't digress, but I ended up, when I ended in Switzerland, Charlie Chaplin was my neighbour. So it was oh, quite so, so I did oh. tell him I'd recorded on his lot. My hero. Anyway, that's by the way. So I went in to see Jerry Moss, and Jerry said, um, you know, we have um, a clause in the Storbs contract have for you to take you up as, a, as an option to do a recording for it. And I said, um, 
I, I didn't, but if you tell me I did, I did, you know. And he said, well, how would you feel about um, uh, making an album for us? And I said, wow, I'd, lo I'd love that. He said, oh, that's really good. He said, so um, it'll be the same deal for the same money that Storm's got, which was $12,000, which worked out about £4,000. And uh, he said, there's no rush, but as long as we can have it um, uh, by the end of, of uh, next year, which was 1972. He said, because we would want to put it out in 1973 at the beginning. I said, great, fine. And uh, he said, okay, signing off, signing on as well. He said, we'd, we'd like to give you a present. And I said, this is, just gets better by the minute. And uh, he said, uh, anything up to um, $1,000 if it's something you'd like. This is 1972. Is there anything? And I went, yeah. He said, what is it you want? I said, well, there's a car lot on Sunset Strip, on the strip just down from the right house, the heart. Heart House, yeah. and I, I said it's got in there a 1957 Cadillac limo. It looks a bit falling apart, and they want they want 975 dollars for it. And I said that's what I'd like. Huh. And he said, "Are you mental?" And I said, "No, that's what I'd like." And he went, "Okay, all right." And he said, "I'll tell you what." He said, "We'll ship it back for you as well." And they did. Whoa. And, uh, and I took it weighed three ton, did two miles to the gallon. Uh, and uh, not very medieval, though, is it? <laughs> <laughs> I, had, I had it all restored. It was a fantastic car. I loved it. All restored, and then lost it in my first divorce. Ah, oh, well. but then you know, six wives. You know, for me, they I pictured these individual women. You know, the Jane Seymour track, whatever it might be. You seemed to inform me as a listener, because I mean, this was an instrumental album. I'd never bought an instrumental album in my life. Mm. You, you informing me as a listener, something about their personalities. Even if it, there is Baroque, there might be also a little bit of grooviness about them. Yeah, well, what, it, what I did was there was two routes you can go down. You either go down the Tudor music period and make it sort of Tudor rock kind of thing or whatever you can do with Tudor instruments or that kind of sound. Not Tudor. <laughs> mocked, yeah. mocked you like it, rock Tudor. Um, but what I did, I, I mean, I like going to art galleries and thing, and I like all sorts of music. And sometimes if you go to a, if you go to a, a, a gallery of a lot of surrealistic paintings, you know, it's, sort of just to generalise, you can go and see a, a painting with a with three splodges on it and uh, and something else that's ridiculous, a triangle or whatever, and it can be called. Moscow at moonlight, you know. Uh, well, just you did push Salvador Dali off a stage once. Is that true? Oh, yeah. yeah, it is true. Yeah. Another day. He screwed up my piano solo, so he had to go. Oh, the, fair um, enough. Yeah, it has to. It's your Abby Hoffman but, moment. But one yeah. of the one of the things that I I did understand reading about uh, these different artists that, is that that's what is in their mind when they're when they're doing their painting. So it's 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 what mm -hmm. is in their head as to what what they what they paint and i thought i'd like to do that musically so i read about all of the wives i made loads of notes i mean books full of notes about the wives i do with every project i do and then um whilst i was writing or reading about one of them or whatever what i would if something came to mind an idea i'd write it down uh, if i was by a piano great i'd write it on the piano or if it was on if i was in a plane i'd write it on a piece of manuscript so i would build up all these ideas for all of the wives. And if I thought, uh, it's like James, um, Catherine, Catherine Howard, 
who was probably only about 19, nobody knows for sure when, when Henry chopped her head off. But she seemed to be a bit of a, a game girl, shall we say. She seemed to be, be, be a bit of a good tiger, which is why I put the what I call the, the fun bits and things in the, in the middle. Uh, it was that kind of thing. So it was meant to be almost paint your own picture. And it did no, for not, me as a kid. I mean, listening to that music, you know, it, it, it expanded my horizons. Living in a little council house, this this was glorious, sumptuous, historic, modern stuff. And didn't uh, you you asked to perform it at Hampton Court? Yeah, two thousand and nine. Oh. Uh, did it at Hampton Court? Oh, you did was, it? Yeah, we did it. Two thousand and nine. I thought you were accused of treason or something when you were. Well, no, it was it was brilliant. I mean, we built. It cost me a fortune. Because even we sold out the two nights, we could only get only allowed five thousand people a night. We sold out the two nights, and we, we worked out all the maths, and it was going to lose a large six-figure sum. That's never stopped you before, though, has it, Rick? No, it didn't stop me this time either. I went, I went. <laughs> this is, it's, it's. What other opportunity are you ever going to get to do this? So it was fantastic. I had a, a big orchestra, a big band, um, a massive stage built with lots of. Lots of stuff. Um, uh, it Impulse. was just astonishing. I mean, I'm, it, it did get out of hand. I mean, I must Trump admit, uh, one of the funniest things was was uh, needed, because um, normally instead of chatting between each of the numbers, my conductor guy, Prothero, he said to me, look, you've got a problem. He said, because you've got a lot of stuff to change and redo. He said, and if you're going to do a bloody costume change as well, he said, how are you going to talk to the audience? He said, you need someone to do it. So I thought, who could be really good at doing this? And I found out Brian Blessed. <laughs> and he was sensational. Although he, I gave him the script. Probably didn't need to go through the PA. No, well, I, <laughs> I gave him the script. He said, do you want me to stick to the script? And I thought, well, he knows a lot about the Tudor period. I said, no, no, feel free to alter it around. Well, he did quite a lot. Um, Carry on six wives, was it? <laughs> oh, it was, well, it was fun. I mean, I got a call from Universal when it was all done because it was filmed. And, and they said, look, We've got a bit of a problem. You're either going to have to edit uh, Brian severely, or we're going to have be, be the first music um, concert video that has to have a PG rating on it. He said, because he said, they, and it's true. I mean, Brian would do things like say, instead of saying uh, Henry consummated his union with uh, Anne Boleyn prior to their actual marriage, he, he would say things like, dirty old sod gave her one everywhere he could, in the kitchen, all, all over the place. He would do, he'd do all of that. I mean, it was brilliant. He really brought it to the trustees of Hampton Court must have loved it. It was, it was hilarious. He was so good, Brian. It was a lovely man, and uh, so it it all worked. It was amazing. I'm, I'm glad I did it. As I say it took me two years to pay for it, but I'm glad I did it because what other opportunity was the 500th um, anniversary oh, wow. yeah, yeah. of his accession to the throne? So. It doesn't get any better than that. Well, okay, so we'll talk about the big production. So we've got to go to King Arthur. Yeah. On ice. On right. ice. I mean, come I mean, on. On ice. I mean, what? Yes. I mean, it has to be said. First of all, as we said, the millions and millions of records that Six Wives and yeah. Journey to the Centre of the Earth and the myths and, 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 and legends of King Arthur that they sold. I mean, these are huge, huge records. No one would believe that today, right? You know, instrumental albums, massive. That's true, but I, I always played what I call Blackjack Dublin up. So the money I earned from Six Wives paid for Journey because I only got the same advance, $12,000, 4000 quid to do Journey. So I used all the money from Henry to pay for Journey and used all the money from, from Journey 
uh, to, a to do the orchestral tour in America with it and to help pay for King Arthur. Uh, You're sort of a pyramid so, scheme on yourself. <laughs> yeah, it, which, which sooner or later, of course, goes wrong. Yeah, but, which eventually it, it did. But someone has uh, to pay, and it's going to be you. Yeah, but uh, if you're going to invest, I suppose invest in yourself to some extent. But King, King Arthur, I wanted to do it at Wembley, at Wembley Empire. Pool. I wanted to do it there. I love that venue. Always have. Yeah, yeah. And and uh, Brian Lane, my manager, and Harvey Goldmine, Goldsmith. <laughs> wanted to do it at, um, they wanted to do it at the Albert Hall. You. And I said, it's the wrong place. Yeah. It's the wrong place. And they came back to me and said, well, you can't do it at the uh, at, uh, Wembley. And I said, why not? And they said, because there's an ice show going in there uh, and it takes three weeks, which it did then, to deal with the ice and all of that. No, so you can't it. Get... <laughs> and, and, so the, and the only dates that are available you could have are, are when the ice is down. I was so furious. I I thought they're trying to fob me off here. So, um, and ice skating wasn't popular, but I loved it. I'd had quite a lot of music used, especially by the Russians for the ice skating stuff. And I really loved it. And I thought this could really depict, this could be great fun. So um, I- That's I got, brilliant lateral thinking. That's extraordinary lateral thinking. Well, I got in the car and I drove up uh, to a Red Line Square in London off Fleet Street, which is where Melody Maker was. Yeah, yeah. Um, dumped the car, went in there, and uh, Ray Coleman wasn't there, but Chris Welch was. And I said to Chris, do you fancy a drink? And he went, yeah, yeah. So we went into the pub, and and he said, uh, so what, what, what are you up to? What are you doing? And I said, oof, well, it's all a bit hush-hush, really. And he went, what's, what's that? I mean, I love Chris. I speak to him a lot, still a great friend. And I said, well, you know, I'm doing the King Arthur album. He said, yeah. I said, well, the concert's... We're doing it at uh, on ice, and he went, "What?" And I said, "Yeah, Empire Paul, we're doing it on ice," and and I started building a big castle in the middle, uh, where the orchestra and everything the choir be. I said, "The skaters will all run out, and we'll all be in the in the big castle. Uh, all of the champion world champion skaters doing that." With I said, "Oh, be hundreds of them, be brilliant." And I said, "But it's all hush hush. Don't say a word, will you?" And he went, "No, no, no. Don't worry. This was on a Wednesday." Thursday morning when Melody Maker came out, which you, you could get your first copies at Tottenham Court Road, there it was at the front, Arthur on ice. And Arthur, and I, which I knew, you know, knew it was going to happen. My manager went apeshit. He said, you better come and see me. How are we going to get? He said, well, you've got to do it now. I said, I said oh, yeah, OK, then. So we did. And uh, But there was a lot of firsts in that because no one had ever hung a PA before in there. And there wasn't any, oh, wow. any there were no rigging points. So Claire Brothers came in from America and they put a series of nets up to house all of the uh, all of the PA and everything. Oh. I mean, there were massive, massive technical difficulties with the whole thing, but it was just fantastic fun. I, 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 and I want to do it again. I'm determined before I depart this mortal coil to do it again because you can do so much more now with ice. Uh, there is a story of sculptures. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Oh yeah, come on! Just... We've got to have the story about the last, about the uh, about the, last the ending, night. the last night. Oh, the last night. <laughs> it was bloody funny, actually. Not with a K. Well, there was one. The the one the, the piece towards the end of the of King Arthur is called the Last Battle, and what we'd arrange would be a lot of a lot of uh, the skaters as knights, about fifty of them. Um, well, it was fifty of them, and they all uh, we had we had dry ice all over the surface, and they had like hobby horses, so they. Uh, the little heads poked out the top 
and they were on there with their, their swords. And it was great because you couldn't see the lower half of the body. And it was like they floated round. And basically, we played the last battle. They would skate round and pair up. And then at the given time in the music, they would draw each other with the sword and then disappear into the, into the uh, dry ice. Well, that night, there was a wonderful guy called Tony Birdfield who worked for it, um, sadly no longer with us, as indeed most of them are who took part in that. Um, he came to me, he said, Rick, and I had a technical problem at the time with one of the keyboards. And he came to me, he said, Rick, we've got a bit of a problem. I said, not now, Tony. I'm up to my neck. I've got a huge technical problem here. He said, well, there's another problem. I said, oh, what is it, Tony? He said, one of the skaters is, is ill and not coming. And I said, Tony, there's about 120 of them. If one's ill, it doesn't matter. They can, he went, well, it will do. I said, no, it's fine. But it was only when we started doing the last battle and they all started skating around with the, with the knights that I, it, came, it came to me as they all paired up to understand what the difficulty was. And the difficulty was it was actually one of the knights that had, had been taken ill and wasn't coming in because there was this one knight left who had no one to pair up with. So after the others had all killed themselves and dropped into the dry ice, there's this poor sod like skating around looking for someone to kill him. <laughs> and, and I'm, I'm at the keyboard, I'm, and the, the conductor, uh, um, the, the late David Meesham. David Meesham was like that, and he went looking at me, going, "What did I?" And I'm, I said, "And as you know, all, all there's there's lots of letter points on music in orchestra." And I said, "Whatever, go get J to K, keep going round." So he made signals to the orchestra, and just kept going round wherever it was J to K, while this poor sod's going around looking for someone to kill him. Now by this time. The audience have sussed it. They've absolutely sussed exactly what's happened. And they're all like sitting back going, how's he going to get out of this one? And <laughs> I was just about to say to David Meesham, look, just stop it. We'll just stop. And that's all we can do. When this guy, a stroke of genius, committed suicide. He got the, <laughs> got the sword, stabbed himself and disappeared and got an ovation like you would not believe. <laughs> I wish to this day that I'd taken the guy's name to thank him because he's folklore. Well, if he's <laughs> listening, if he's listening. Rick, we can't keep you any longer. Oh. You, you are just unbelievable. Well, we could. I could listen to you all night, and we may have to get you back one well, day. Do, it. I, I think do, it, we do it again if you're brave enough. We'll have Close to the Edge. We'll have the breakup. We'll have Topographic Oceans. But, yes. Well, your whole Burton-Taylor-type relationship with Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That, Do you know that, every uh, time every time you went back, it was like Ronaldo going back to Man United, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. there's, a, there's an element in that. Yeah, always happy to do it again, guys. Oh, it's good, listen, good luck. Joyous. With, uh, yeah. You're not so grumpy at the moment, though, are you? Now it's the, it's not quite as grumpy tour for you now, isn't it? No, grump, grumpy's. I always think of grumpy as 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 funny. Grumpy is something where you laugh, or, or and you go, yeah, but it's true. And there's nothing you can do about it. Well, I mean, we'd love I'm, to come and see you when you play. Where, yeah, well, absolutely. Wherever you're playing near us. Uh, this come Where's home for you? Well, we're, I'm in London. He's down in... Well, I'm, in London. I'm in London and Brighton. So, yeah. yeah. By coastal. Where are you I've playing got, in London? We've got Cadogan Hall coming up. Lovely, beautiful. Oh, beautiful venue. Yeah, so sort that for you if you like. Yes, absolutely. Fantastic. We'll make a night of it, shall we, Guy? And Yes, with a K. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> oh, thank you so much, Rick. Well, oh, thank you. joy, mate. Absolute joy talking to you. That, uh, that's a close tie with Joe Elliott for the least we've said in an episode of this. I, I know. I was beginning but to get I'd, bored with myself. I'm, same here. I just I didn't want to interject, but we had to... I mean, 
Oh, man. He's so good, isn't he? I He's mean, so you know, good. We didn't get the Rick Wankman story, apparently. That is... And that, that's a great... Didn't get, I, I'm not even going to say... We need an acronym. Hang on. B-S-T... B-S-T-S. What is that? Barely scratched the surface. We did. We BSTS'd it. But we got we got the roots of prog, which is which is yes. Good, right. But listen, I mean what what amazing I mean his career that we missed out about 90 albums. Yeah, but uh, we didn't even mention not the Norman Wisdom one. The Norman Wisdom one. I mean what? What a, I mean, you know, listen, people use National Treasure and people use the word legend, but that that guy this guy really is, isn't Absolutely. he? Absolutely. hundred percent. Yeah. Well, so we see you next week. Will you, I see you next week, guy? Do you think we should do this again? I think. Shall we? Shall, shall we? Nothing or else would, going on. Or, or will I? Will I end up as the last knight? Thank <laughs> <laughs> and it's good night from me and me. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. All right, and it's good night from me and me. Mm-hmm.